The following is a message by Dr. Michael Horton of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. The passage that I've chosen for this morning as we're continuing through through Mark is uh, chapter 12, the parable of the tenants. Beginning at verse 1, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. So with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Mark's gospel has uh, fascinated me for a long time because, as one commentator uh, I read a while back put it, uh, it's a passion narrative with a long introduction. Uh, really, it's a remarkable, uh, uh, remarkably cross-centered uh, gospel. Everything is leading to the denouement of, the, of Golgotha, and certainly this parable here is Uh, the climax, I think, of the parables leading to Golgotha. Uh, First of all, it might help for us to put this in the historical context of what was actually going on during this eventful week. Uh, This follows the triumphal entry. If we put it in terms of days, uh, Jesus uh, on Sunday enters Jerusalem, and everything that happens here now happens on the Temple Mount, including the giving of this parable. On Monday, Jesus cursed the fig tree. Full of leaves, the fig tree nevertheless bore no fruit. Then Jesus goes to the outer court where he finds the marketplace and he turns over the tables. The religious leaders are now figuring out how to kill Jesus. What on earth is he doing? Who does he think he is? He's taking over the temple. But they were fearful of the crowds, the crowds that had welcomed the arrival of David's son, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. 
Jesus leaves the temple in the evening with the disciples, and then he comes back on Tuesday and he explains what he had done to the fig tree to the disciples. They're bewildered. What on earth does this mean? Why did you walk over to that tree and curse it? And, of course, the fig tree was a symbol of Israel, sort of like uh, mom and apple pie is for us. Uh, So Jesus was striking out against one of the most symbolic elements of Israel's self-identity. The temple mount is under judgment. The king has come, and he is exercising, he's, he's taking control of the temple mount. No wonder it is at this point, the climax of the story, where the religious leaders are plotting to kill him, trying to figure out how it is they can bring him to trial. They have the legal basis because he's assuming authority over the temple. But they're afraid of the crowds. The temple mount, Jesus says, is about to be cast into the sea. If you had the faith, the size of a mustard seed, he tells the disciples, you could say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. Far from a a carte blanche or name it, claim it, uh, the prosperity gospel, what Jesus is saying here is that this is the time. This is the time for the temple to come under judgment. This is the time when the temple and its cultists will become obsolete because I am here. It's not the cleansing of the temple. It's the obsolescence of the temple, the judgment of the temple that uh, Jesus introduces here. Religious leaders demand an explanation from Jesus. By whose authority are you doing all of this? And Jesus isn't ready to be killed. He's not ready for Good Friday. And so he asks them a question in front of the crowd. By whose authority did John the Baptist do what he did? And they knew that if they answered from God, (laughs) they would be in trouble in one direction. And if they answered from men, then the crowds would uh, take them into their own hands. Now it's Tuesday, still, and in the background of what Jesus says here in the parable, we might recall Jeremiah and Joel, Jeremiah 6.8, calling Judah to repentance before destruction. Jeremiah brought God's word, Be warned, O Jerusalem, lest I turn from you in disgust, lest I make you a desolation, an uninhabited land. So, too, the Lord laments the devastation of his land by an invading army, which prefigures the day of the Lord. And we read, it has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. All of this, again, prefiguring the day of the Lord that will come upon Judah as well as the nations. Be ashamed O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, and gladness dries up from the children of man. And so the psalm we just sang, Psalm 80, has this moving picture of Yahweh transplanting this little vine from Egypt and it growing into a flourishing vineyard in his holy land.
The owner built the vineyard, begins the parable. And then he leased it to caretakers. We recall in Leviticus, you are but tenants in my land. And then he went into another country with his servant commissioned to bring the annual tribute, covenantal language again. A percentage of each vintage would go to the master and the servant would go each year to receive the tribute from the suzerain to take it to his master's house. The tribute, sorry, from the vassal to take to the suzerain to the master, uh, to take to the master's house. And so when the season came, we read the servant arrived to receive his master's due, but the tenants took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Pretty serious covenantal action here. They, they refused to give the tribute that was the due of the owner of the vineyard. They seemed to think that they were the owners of the vineyard and that the master had no right to it. Notice the mercy of the, of the master here that Jesus underscores in the parable. The master could have squashed them right then and there, but instead he, he sends another servant. Maybe they'll listen to this servant. And they beat that servant. Then he sends another servant, and they kill him. And so it happens again and again. He sends servants to collect his tribute and his mercy and compassion are treated with contempt. Some they beat and some they killed. But finally he sent a beloved son. Now maybe they'll respect him. Surely they will respect the beloved son. Not just a servant of God's house, but the son. But instead, showing their turpitude, the the deep uh, depravity of their hearts, They plot. This isn't a crime of passion. Uh, This is a deliberate uh, uh, crime of forethought. They're plotting and scheming so that they can own the vineyard, so that they can get the inheritance from the son. So instead of respecting the son as superior to the servants who had preceded him, they're particularly interested in killing the son so that they may receive his inheritance. And so they plot and they scheme. And right now, the action being described in this parable is already taking place among the religious leaders. The parable reaches its tragic climax. They killed the beloved son and threw him out of the vineyard. That's that. But the parable isn't finished. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And Psalm 118, which Jesus is quoting here, Uh, refers to the opposition of the nations as the nations come to destroy God's holy hill. And yet the irony in Psalm 118 is is that that little nation 
that the nations trampled on has become the cornerstone. It has actually become the chief of nations leading the nations in triumphal procession. Ha, you thought, you thought that this was just a little kid on the block. You thought that this was a nothing. But this was the Lord's plant that he brought from Egypt and has taken root in his holy land. Now that which is behind is in front. That which was, uh, that which was small is grand. That which is nothing now is God's cornerstone. What must the religious leaders now have thought when Jesus, whose action had already as much as said, I am the temple, or at least I am replacing it, now says that he is the cornerstone, that he is Israel, and that the religious leaders are cast now in the role of the Gentile kings and nations trying to pull Israel down, trying to destroy Israel. At that very moment in Israel's history, there is a parallel to what is going on right now on the Temple Mount in the ministry of Jesus. And Israel's becoming the cornerstone is not something that Israel accomplished by her rededication to temple, land, and Torah, as they were now seeking to do. We read it was the Lord's doing. The Lord did this. In the same way all that is about to happen to Jesus is the Lord's doing. Just as the unwanted stone rejected by the builders became the cornerstone, the religious leaders will not have the last word concerning the beloved son. And here Jesus brings to a point all that he has said and done since he entered Jerusalem on Sunday, on Palm Sunday. He is the temple. He forgives sin directly without going through the temple cult. He takes those who were excluded, the lame, the blind, the deaf, those who were excluded because of their infirmities and could not enter in the precincts of the holy temple. He takes them and he brings them in. He heals them on the temple mount. He touches them. Which for any rabbi would have been seen as an act of making unclean. While he tells the religious leaders they are unclean. This is his holy hill. He curses the fig tree and casts the temple mount into the sea, as it were. And the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was claiming when he quoted Psalm 118. And that meant that they were cast in the role of a nation seeking to destroy the house. And that's why they realized, hey, am I missing something here? Is he talking about us? The ironies here are just bewildering, as with all of the parables, just full of irony. Outsiders are insiders. Insiders are outsiders. The temple is no temple. The temple has become, the no temple has become the temple. It's all reversal. The religious leaders now are the Gentile persecutors of holy Israel. This isn't the first time Jesus has said this. Of course, he says this in the woes as well, that you are the persecutors of the church of God since Abel, uh, 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 since, since Cain persecuted Abel. Their plot comes to nothing. 
They think that they have put an end to the beloved son, but their plot comes to nothing. The vineyard is the master's, and the murder of the beloved son will not issue in their inheriting his estate. Instead, it will issue in their being cast out, their contract being annulled, and the vineyard being given to others who will care for it. We recall Jesus' sentence on the fig tree in the previous chapter. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. That was the meaning of his cursing of the fig tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And in Matthew's account of this parable of the tenants, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And no wonder the response is recorded in such stirring terms. As they were, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. By the end of the week, however, they would fulfill this parable. They would have their way with the beloved son. But so too would God have his way with the beloved son and raise him in everlasting life. Let's pray. O great, patient, and merciful master of the house who sent your prophets to execute your covenant purposes and then sent your own beloved son, we confess our own hardness of heart for it was our crimes against you that brought him to his death but your love for us that sent him there. And it was your love and power that raised him from the dead making us co-heirs with him of your lush vineyard. Since you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear the meaning of this parable, we pray that you would also give us a heart to feel your love for other outsiders whom you have brought near so that together with us they too may become part of that holy house that you are building for your glory. Hear us, we pray, in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.